Two and a Half Admins, episode 48. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan, this time managing boot environments. Yeah, so we have a, an article about how to use boot environments with ZFS to basically have multiple versions of your root file system uh, by using the copy and write nature of ZFS, which makes it much easier to undo any changes to your system, whether that's a package upgrade that didn't go well or you just goof something up. Uh, being able to just be like, I want my laptop to go back to how it was yesterday morning is super easy. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. So Jim, you've been playing with the framework laptop. This is the modular laptop that you can slide in various cards to have different ports and it's supposed to be totally repairable and potentially even upgradable. It seemed like a lot of hype about it, but now you've actually got your hands on it. What's the verdict? Well, the verdict so far is that, you know, all the things that everybody was really worried about, you know, oh, it's going to be big, it's going to be bulky, you know, the finish is not going to be good, yada, yada, yada. There's there's no concerns about that. It's very small. It's very lightweight. It, uh, you know, it feels good in your hands. Chassis-wise, it's a very nice laptop. It really is slender and lightweight, like they said it was, and you really can slide and remove various modules in and out on the side rather than having fixed ports. Uh, ultimately, that means it's recessed USB, very deeply recessed USB-C is really what the back end of it is. Yeah. Can you actually get a USB-C cable into it? You could, but it's a bad idea and you should not. Right. Um, you have USB-C modules that are basically just like, you know, two inch extenders yeah. for that port. And that is the proper way to do that. There's a little release button on either side. And in order to remove a module, you have to press that release and you have to get like a fingernail into it and kind of work it loose. Once they're in there, they're in there pretty solidly. You can absolutely remove them and swap them around if you need to. But if you were worried about like, you know, little fiddly rattly parts or whatever, you really don't need to be concerned about that. Once they're in there, they feel like they are part of the laptop. You've got four of these bays and you can put in HDMI out. You can put DisplayPort out. Uh, you can put in USB-A, you can put in USB-C, or you can put in SD card readers. Yeah, because it's just USB-C, right? So anything you can get a USB-C adapter of, in theory, could be made into one of these modules. Correct. Is it big enough to do a real Ethernet port? No, uh, you could maybe try to do one of those, you know, bastard fold-down things, but that's that's kind of what you'd have to do there. So far, this is all of the good news, right? It's not very expensive. It's very lightweight. It looks good. It feels good. But there are problems. Uh, the good news is I think these are problems that will absolutely get worked out over time. Uh, this is a very, very new system. At the time we record this, it hasn't the, the embargo hasn't even lifted yet as we record. It will have by the time you're hearing this. But I opted for the do-it-yourself version of the laptop, which comes, you know, basically disassembled. Like, yeah, the motherboard's in it, but uh, you got to put in the RAM, you got to put in the NVMe drive, you even have to connect the, the, the Wi-Fi card and the antennas to it. And I figured I'm going to be disassembling this thing anyway, so why would I not opt for the DIY version? And the answer, as it turns out, is because you really don't want to be stuck trying to install Windows on this thing for yourself. And unfortunately, I haven't had much luck installing Linux yet either. My Windows 10 installation USB drive would not even boot the laptop. And there is no access that I've been able to find yet to a, a fully functioned BIOS. The only thing you get is a boot manager that you can select a drive from if it didn't automatically find a boot disk, basically. And when you go in there, when my Windows 10 USB thumb drive is installed, it just 
there's nothing there. There's nothing to select. You can't boot the laptop. I double checked to make certain it wasn't a problem with the thumb drive, and it isn't. It's a perfectly valid UFI drive. And in fact, when I boot it on my test rig, it offers to install Windows just fine. So I'm not sure what the issue there was. The laptop did boot with a Fedora installer and an Ubuntu 2004 installer, but both had problems. Uh, the Fedora installer literally just said, uh-oh, <laughs> and quit. And I think it says, you know, we had a problem or whatever, and it's just done. It's over. Ubuntu, I had other problems. Uh, the touchpad didn't work in either Ubuntu or Fedora, you know, during the part of the installer that I could get to. And I was not having any luck with keyboard shortcuts with Ubuntu. And that left me stuck because the one USB-A module that I had for the system had my USB thumb drive in it, <laughs> leaving me nowhere to plug in a mouse. So I can't move the cursor. I can't click anything. On a server installer, that would have been okay, but I was using the desktop installer. So at this point, I've crapped out on installing Windows. I've crapped out on installing uh, Linux. And I'm just like, okay, what can I do with this thing to actually be able to test it? So I went downstairs and I grabbed a completely different NVMe drive that actually already had Windows 10 installed on it. So I was like, let's see what happens if I just put this thing in the machine. Now, again, the good news is it is incredibly easy to open up and work on. I have no complaints about that. To work on this thing, there are five captive screws in the bottom of it. They're Torx T5, which is a little annoying, but they provide you with a Torx T5 driver with a spudger on the back end, and that's very nice. So you undo these five screws. They're captive. They're not going to fall out. You don't have to worry about it. The odd thing now is that the back of the laptop that you just took these screws out of, that's not what comes off. You flip the laptop back over and open the screen up, and the whole keyboard plate just comes right off of that sucker. And it's actually secured with little magnets, which is really neat when you go to put it all back together again, because you just kind of settle it down on top of where it ought to go, and it audibly like sucks itself back down and like clicks into place. That sounds really nice. Yeah, and you just put the screws back in, and you're good to go. Everything's very easy to get to on the inside of it. The NVMe is right there front and center. The two DIM modules are right there and very easy to deal with. Even the Wi-Fi module was as easy as those ever are, although I'm never going to be a big fan of the little teeny tiny antenna connectors on those things. But at any rate, so I disassembled this thing again, and I put in my already installed Windows 10 NVMe drive, and it does, in fact, boot up. And now, for the first time, I can tell that the touchpad actually works, <laughs> which I was relieved about. But unfortunately, once I actually boot into Windows and play around a little bit more, I discovered that although the touchpad, I can now move the cursor around, and I can click, and I can double-click, there's no way to right-click. It does not recognize either the two-finger tap, or there is a, you know, like a right-click physical indent on this touchpad, right? You can click it over on the right-hand corner, but it doesn't do anything at all. And when I go into Windows Device Manager, I see that it's detected as just a basic Microsoft PS2 mouse, which explains why the multi-finger stuff doesn't work, you know, like the, the two-finger tap to right-click. So it's just a mess. There's an enormous laundry list of devices not detected by Windows, including the display adapter. It's just, it's not really in a usable condition. Now, these are things, it looks like something out of the late 90s or early 2000s. You know, when you do a fresh install of Windows and you see just like this huge list in the other devices section of Device Manager, you know, all these things with no driver, many of which are just like, PCI device and, uh, you know, the occasional one actually says, oh, hey, I'm some kind of network controller. And you're like, thanks for that. 
But, you know, for the last at least 10 years, I haven't seen that. Like, you do a, a Windows installation from scratch on a new machine, be it a laptop or a desktop, and there might maybe be one device that you have to go find a driver for, right? But the rest of it's just good to go, and a lot of the time, everything is. It's almost like doing a Linux install in that respect, but not on this thing. I Like I said, just undetected device after undetected device. My next step after that, I tried doing a Windows 10 factory reset because this was a pre-installed Windows 10, right? So I thought, well, if I force it to completely reinstall from scratch, format its own drive, re-download Windows 10 from the cloud and install it directly, maybe that will do better. And it, it does not. It's the exact same experience. My advice to you is try Manjaro and Endeavor OS because they're Arch-based and uh, more likely to have up-to-date kernels that will actually work with the hardware. My advice to you is bugger right off of that Manjaro recommendation. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, my first couple thoughts are that's definitely the downside of being a smaller OEM is that, you know, it's harder to get stuff bundled with Windows and so on or even just publish to Windows Update so that it can slurp it down. I find it odd that... It couldn't boot off the Windows USB stick with EFI, but it could boot off what was already on the NVMe because it shouldn't be able to tell the difference, really. I don't know what to tell you. Like I said, it's a now that's it's not a previously installed Windows 10 on the USB. You know, it's the official Microsoft Windows 10 USB created with their USB creation tool on a Windows 10 system. So it's as vanilla as you can possibly get. And like I said, I I did a test boot of it on, you know, my open air test rig and mm-hmm. it fired right up and offered to install Windows. An EFI binary with the right file name in the ESP directory should should do it. And yeah, I wonder what's going on there. Really the point is if you're buying the DIY edition, you'd better be prepared for a lot of DIY. Well, I think you mentioned I guess we were talking before the show about when you DIY a machine from scratch, usually you have to go to the motherboard manufacturer and download a big set of drivers. And it sounded like you looked for that on their site and it was coming soon still. Yeah, it's it's coming soon. But to be fair to them, the device hasn't actually launched yet. Right. You know, I have this thing before it's available even to purchase, let alone to have in your hot little hands. You think they might have given you a link to the drivers or something if they wanted a positive review, though? <laughs> That absolutely does seem like it would have been a great idea on their part. But the good news is the software is something that they can fix after the fact easily. Whereas it sounds like they did a good job solving all of the the hardware worries we would have had. Like it feels clunky or rattly or the build quality isn't there or whatever. It actually sounds really nice. And it sounds like what a lot of us have been asking for. A laptop that has some degree of modularity and repairability. That is exactly why I don't want to slag them off or these problems I've been having because they they all strike me as imminently fixable and all the things that would be difficult to fix seem great. <laughs> so a bit of full disclosure though. So this is a review unit. Is it going back or do you get to keep it? It's going back. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Would you buy one, do you think? Um, I, I, I would need to get to the point where I felt more confident that I could install Ubuntu on it and have everything work. Yeah. But... Once that's solved, absolutely, this would make a fantastic daily driver laptop. And it's entirely possible. I mean, we're still in the very early stages for me in fighting this thing. Ubuntu 20.04 was the latest I tried, and I suspect the majority of our issues here are simply that we need the absolute latest freaking kernel to get things going because the CPU on this thing is an i7-1185G7. You know, it is incredibly new. It seems quite likely that if I create an Ubuntu 21.10 beta, uh, you know, USB and try to boot from that and, you know, get the very bleeding edge kernel. 
it's entirely possible I'll have much better results there. Yeah. Or just, you know, get your feet wet and use Arch, man. You're a bad, bad person. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. So Jim, you decided to piss the internet off yesterday with an article about Muse Group. As one does, yes. (laughs) For those of you who aren't familiar, Muse Group are the new owners of Audacity. They are also the owners of MuseScore, which if you're a musician, you're probably familiar with. And if you're not, you've probably never heard of it. MuseScore is a sheet music application. It allows you to uh, download, open, edit, upload, and share musical arrangements with other musicians. And when Muse Group first acquired MuseScore, it was basically a piracy haven, kind of like the Pirate Bay for sheet music, only if the Pirate Bay just lets you download stuff directly from it and you didn't have to bother with all that BitTorrent nonsense. Uh, When Muse Group acquired it, they wanted to make it a legitimate service. Uh, According to them, the service was actually on the verge of being shut down by major music publishers that were uh, tired of its crap when they acquired it. But uh, they acquired it specifically with the intent to put together genuine relationships with music publishers and not to lose the grassroots appeal where you can upload your own sheet music and have a ton of public domain and creative commons and, you know, whatever license scores up there, but also to be able to legitimately offer scores from, you know, major publishers, uh, you know, Sony, uh, BMI, Disney, that kind of thing. A uh, matter of fact, they have got tons and tons of Disney arrangements up on the site. And so since Muse Group acquired Audacity, they've made a few blunders PR wise, essentially. First of all, with the announcement of the acquisition, Then there was talk of telemetry, which pissed people off, and then the contributor license agreement. And so when it comes to the open source community, Muse Group don't have a lot of goodwill. Joe, I I think it would be fair to turn your statement on its head and say, you know, when it comes to public relations, Muse Group has made a few PR moves that weren't outright blunders. (laughs) Yeah. But only a few. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because if you talk to those folks, they're actually a lot more into the open source way of life, for lack of a better turn of phrase, than you might think. I spoke to their head of strategy, Daniel Ray, on the phone for about an hour over the latest blunder, which involves the way in which he tried to get someone who's pirating those licensed works that we discussed earlier to basically stop bypassing login requirements and downloading them directly. Yeah, this is a developer called Wenzeng Tang, who goes by Xmader on GitHub. And he developed a tool called MuseScore Downloader. 
Right. So MuseScore Downloader is a tool that allows you to download this sheet music directly from the site without actually needing a login or a paid account or anything. You can just download every single work of music there. Now, first off, obviously, this implies that, you know, there's some things pretty badly wrong with MuseGroup's backend for this site. It should be doing server-side authentication and just not allowing a download if you don't have a valid... If you don't present credentials. That was going to be my first question. Is like, how is the solution to this problem of this app downloading without being logged in to just make the site require a login to get to the things. I'm guessing that would break their integration with some other applications. You got to remember this. They didn't create the entire stack. They purchased this site, which had been just an anything goes piracy haven for years and years and years. And I have no idea what the details of the back end are, but I have to assume there's something hairy there that's making it difficult for them to implement proper server-side authentication that can't just easily be bypassed via API. Or, you know, somebody's made a nice thing that pulls up the sheet music on your keyboard or whatever and integrates it, and they don't want to lose that by breaking the API and requiring a login or something. Something like that. Uh, I, I don't know the details of that, but it seems pretty clear there's got to be some kind of roadblock there. Or yes, they would have done exactly that. They've got to be planning on overhauling everything and doing that at some point. But as things stand, they played cat and mouse back and forth with XMator for quite a while. They would change the API to break the way that he was getting you know, around it and downloading things he shouldn't be able to with the tool. And then he would alter the tool to just fix whatever. So obviously, this is a problem because it means now you're in a situation where this developer is not just like one time doing a thing with the API that the rights owners hadn't intended and didn't wanted. He's very explicitly playing cat and mouse with them. And every time they break his access, he's deliberately working around it to get it back again. And the U.S. legal system has some pretty draconian statutes revolving around that. So originally, Muse Group thought that they would be able to get this guy to cut it out by just, you know, using the DMCA. But as it turns out, GitHub wants no part of DMCA takedowns from people who aren't necessarily the right holders to someone who isn't actually hosting the content in question to begin with. Uh, GitHub was like, nope, we're out of this. You're on your own. And so nothing happened for a long time. And the, uh, you know, XMater and XMater's fans on GitHub just kind of assumed this meant victory. But um, the issue is not that Muse Group has no way of getting it taken down. The issue is that the way that they would need to take it down would be to literally sue this guy. And they wouldn't just be suing him for, you know, a DMCA violation. You know, we'd be talking like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. We'd be talking about, uh, you know, U.S. Code 17, actual criminal offenses for working around, uh, you know, copyright protection and for, it sounds funny to us to talk about, you know, breaking into a computer by just using an API, but you know, the law has made that pretty clear. Like if your password is password and you've got a sticky note on your monitor that says it's password and somebody who isn't supposed to get into your computer comes in and like reads that and types in password and gets in, they broke in as far as the court is concerned. I think we've buried the lead here because we haven't even talked about the controversial part yet. The real controversy here is that Muse Group pointed out that XMater is a Chinese expat who is incredibly critical of the Chinese government and has himself stated his worry that he would be thrown into a Chinese prison basically forever for what he's had to say about China. And since they can't go after XMater with something simple like the DMCA and they're only available 
option left for legal enforcement, you know, or actual criminal charges, that raises the risk that X Mater might get deported from his current host country, which is not the USA and not China. And should he end up within the grasp of Chinese authorities, things might get really bad. Now, those are true statements as far as anybody can tell. Xmater himself points out his own fears about that in another repository, which Muse Group is aware of because they linked directly to that repository when they talked about this issue. But the problem is, obviously, that sounds like doxing the guy and, uh, you know, making a very direct threat. And you can interpret it in either way. You can either say, hey, well, you know, this is a thinly veiled threat. Hey, that's a nice life you got there. You know, be a shame if something happened to it. Or you can interpret it as, you know, exactly what uh, Daniel Ray of Muse Group said on the face of it, which is, you know, you're a bright young developer with your whole life ahead of you. Don't throw it away just so somebody can download your illegal oboe bootleg of the Pirates of the Caribbean theme. The other interesting one here is, you know, when they tried to go through GitHub to get it taken down, GitHub is like, well, it's not actually the infringing material, so we won't take it down. And it reminds me of the the YouTube DL when it got taken down temporarily. It was because mm-hmm. it specifically mentioned certain copyrighted works. And yep. I think once they explained that, then it wasn't a problem anymore. But that's just GitHub trying to get out of the way of it. <laughs> they don't want it to be their problem. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Google is not quite so hands off as that. They managed to get the uh, MuseScore downloader extension removed from Chrome Web Store. But even there, it's not removed from the Chrome Web Store because it was, you know, a tool for bypassing copyright protection. It was actually removed from the Chrome Web Store because it says MuseScore in the name, and that's trademark infringement. Yeah, so they'd be able to just re-upload it as, you know, MuseScore downloader or whatever way they want to obfuscate the name slightly. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the MuseScore downloader fans on the GitHub issue actually uh, suggested MooseScore. <laughs> This is kind of being seen as a David versus Goliath situation by seemingly a lot of people who are just not really understanding Muse Group's situation here, that they have to deal with rights holders and they have to be seen to be doing something about stuff like this. And they're in a very difficult position. And you really did sum it up, Jim, I think, at the end of your article. When you said Muse Group's next acquisition should probably be a public relations firm instead of a software project, because they just seem to be so bad at messaging. Like, if they had some decent PR person working for them, they could have explained this, they could have explained a lot of the Audacity stuff as well, and they wouldn't be on everyone's shit list right now. To be fair, I'm not sure a PR firm would have helped with the telemetry stuff. It seems like most of the Audacity dev community was on board with the telemetry as it was already explained. And I don't think anyone is going to keep, you know, just kind of the general internet in 2021 from, you know, robble, robble, robbling over telemetry showing up in a program. Uh, People don't like it. And it's going to take a long time before anyone accepts it at face value without a lot of, you know, kickback and screaming and fussing. Well, I think the same thing is true with the other half of this as well. Like, just anything getting taken down off the internet. There's a bunch of people that be like, you could never convince me that that was a good thing. The takedown part goes a lot further than that. A PR firm would absolutely have been able to help them with the takedown thing. A PR firm would have said, you know, no, you don't mention that this guy's a Chinese national expat who has fears and no, uh, uh, nope. You just say you got to take this down and this is why. And, you know, then we go from there. Now, the irony here is that that approach would also probably make it more likely that, you know, X-Mater would end up getting his life ruined by all this. But what do you do? 
Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions or feedback to us, show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of Patreon is that you get to skip the queue, which is what Sean has done. He says, I had a question regarding backups. I currently have a NAS holding about four terabytes of data. It's currently backed up to an unlimited Google Drive, but I suspect that Google won't keep that drive unlimited forever. So I'm investigating alternatives for a simple off-site backup. What I'd like is a simple rolling backup, keeping a few days, a few weeks, and maybe a few months of rolling snapshots. This is available for consumer backup services, but most consumer services don't want to provide backup for NAS devices. The fact that I'd like rolling backups seems to make cheap archive services like Glacier and Azure Archive not really viable, since, from what I've read, doing incremental backups on those services can be challenging. While there are services like Backblaze B2, it seems like there are tons of landmines in bandwidth charges, API call charges, etc., that could drive up the costs when doing incremental appends and prunes. And services like rsync.net, where you do have unrestricted disk access, charge $25 per terabyte per month. All this seems incredibly complicated and potentially expensive for a simple offsite backup of a few terabytes. Is there a better, simpler solution that I'm missing? Should I just grab a Raspberry Pi and an external hard disk and ask a friend if I can store it in their basement? Should I go rent a 1U rack at a colo facility and try to split the costs with a few friends? Is this problem as hard as I think it is, or is there something much simpler? I then asked Sean what file system he's running, because I knew that that's the first question you guys would want to know. And he says, it's a Synology NAS, so it's using their hybrid ButterFS. For the rolling backups, he was thinking of either using Borg, if he can get something that he can run a service at the other end, or Restic, if he's backing up a pure storage device. That said, and here we go, guys, if switching to ZFS changes my backup provider options, that could be really useful information too. So basically, as much as Alan and I both would love to tell you, look, just use ZFS and it will solve all your problems, and it will, that's not going to be the answer that you want here because you've got that Synology NAS, and I'm sure you're pretty invested in that, and ZFS plus Synology is not a thing that's happening anytime soon. And the other part is definitely that backing up four terabytes of stuff needs at least four terabytes of space. A different file system is not generally going to make it take less space or use less bandwidth uh, other than the compression, maybe. 
Sure. It just makes it a lot easier and faster to actually, you know, deal with the incrementals. But again, that's a red herring. Uh, ZFS is pretty much off the table here unless and until our friend is willing to give up that Synology NAS, and I'm not going to try to talk them into doing that. So there are about a million Amazon S3-based, relatively inexpensive backup services out there that you can just dump incrementals onto and retrieve them later. I don't have a particular recommendation for any given one of them. I do like your idea of, you know, just grab a Raspberry Pi and an external disk and throw it in a friend's basement. Assuming you have a friend that you trust enough to, you know, have that Raspberry Pi with all your data in their house, that's probably going to be about the best option for you. The least expensive. It's the cheapest option. Um, It also gives you the really great possibility of if you have a catastrophic loss, you have the option of just driving over to your buddy's house and grabbing that disc and being able to work with it locally, which is something that you can't do with a jungle disc or, you know, some other S3 based backup service or what have you out in the cloud. Yeah. And the same thing goes for bootstrapping the original backup. Anything to the cloud means uploading all four terabytes of that to the cloud. Your friend's house, you can do all that locally and then just do the incrementals over the network. Because, you know, your home internet can only upload so many kilobytes per second. And, you know, you might have a cap or something that would interfere with things too. So what are we talking just rsync here then? Yeah, absolutely. rsync or an rsync-based service would be my first personal preference. Yeah, or like you mentioned, Borg or Restic as the transport. But, you know, with Borg, you need a service that can handle it. And like you said, rsync.net offers Borg backup as a thing, but... In the end, nobody's really going to sell you storage cheaper than it costs them. And storage costs money to keep running all the time. Although if you want something that's kind of halfway in between a traditional commercial service and, you know, your buddy's basement, there's always ZFS.rent, which is, I believe, $10 a month per hard drive you want them to throw into a box (laughs) for you to access. You literally have to supply them with the hard drives and then you pay them $10 per hard drive per month. And that also lets you solve the bootstrapping problem because you can fill the hard drive before you send it so that you're just incrementaling. And Amazon offers a thing where you mail them hard drives, but I think you have to have at least so much data before they're willing to do it. They don't they don't want to do onesie twosies. They're like, if you mail us crates of hard drives, we yeah. will load them for you. A pallet of hard drives will will toss them in. <laughs> well I think like I think they just literally read them into their system and then either send the hard drives back to you or, or ditch them or something. Like they're not actually plugging them into their hardware, but yeah. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.